Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It's Monday, May the 8th. I am delighted to be joined today by Omar Najiya, Global Head of Derivatives at BB Energy, Dr. Kara Nakhli, CEO of Crystal Energy, and Omar Abedli, Director of Research at the Bahrain Center for Strategic International and Energy Studies. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this morning. Omar, let's go to you first uh, for, for a look at the technicals, if you like, on the market. Another sort of fairly disappointing last week um, in terms of those who want prices. Um, but where do you think this whole market is, you know, is, is going now? We're kind of approaching the middle of the second quarter. OPEC cuts don't seem to be sort of keeping those short sellers away, let's say. So wh when will we see this confidence return that you've talked about? We are on mute, Amar. Sorry. So look, you know that you have basically uh, two sessions in the oil market when it trades. You have a session which is what used to be the pit session, which is basically when most of the people trading are there, or when all the people trading are there. And then you've got the 24-hour session, which is basically when few people are there, right? So if you look at this market and you look at uh, the low that we had, so basically that low came in at 63.64. It was on a, I think Monday, I think, I can't remember, but... It was basically a spike. So basically you had the low uh, during very early uh, Dubai time, kind of early Singapore time, <coughs> call it 63.50. And then during the day, it traded uh, $69, right? So that happened during 24 hour time, not when most people were behind their desks, so to speak. So why, how, who, um, I don't know, but the price definitely printed there. But I think if you look at, if you look at both sessions and you, you don't really try and fudge and say, look, this really didn't happen and did it happen and all this kind of stuff, I think the market is defensive right now. So I think the WTI is trading about, let's call it $72. If you can get this market above 74 then I think, um, you know, uh, it would start to look pleasant. Uh, but to really look kind of, you know, bullish, 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 you'd have to take out the $83, which is, you know, uh, $10, $12 away from where we are now. If, if you look at it, yeah. Yeah, let, me, stop you at it, let me just stop you there, Amar, for now. Uh, Carol, just let's go to you on that. I mean... We're talking about the trading sessions and, and some technicals there, Omar is highlighting. Uh, but I mean, the trend, uh, as we've seen it in the last sort of few weeks, has been lower. Okay. I mean, the trend of prices. Now, is that how much of that would you say is based on uh, sort of technical stuff and how much is based on real uh, sort of a change of attitude uh, or sentiment to the fundamentals of demand? That, that are manifesting more clearly every week that passes? 
Good morning, Janet. Good morning, everyone. Well, look, when it comes to oil markets, I stay away from trying to explain daily price volatility. I'm not a trader. I'm not into this business. But I like to look at markets more as um, global oil markets as big, complex, sometimes slow moving, and too many variants come into the equation. You mentioned demand, but there's also the fundamentals of supply. But let's look first at the fundamentals of demand. And demand is driven by many factors. Chief among them is the economic outlook. And we all know today that the economic outlook, while still highly uncertain, is not as rosy as, for example, at the beginning of the year, given various forecasts published, it might change. But there is a great degree of market uncertainty. But also, we shouldn't forget that demand also reacts to prices. So we cannot expect demand to continue its momentum, especially in the light of such a volatile or uncertain economic outlook, to continue growing when prices are high. So you have to take that dynamic also into consideration. On the supply side, we also have the same dynamic in the opposite way, whereby the high prices that we saw last week have boosted supplies, and that was for, that has forced OPEC to cut production. So for the, I mean, nobody really knows where the market is going for the rest of the year, but I'm seeing less confidence today in various market outlook than we had at the beginning of the year where we heard all the bulls, especially of Wall Street, expecting three digits prices. And you know the boom from Chinese demand, for example, I think it was Goldman Sachs who said that the growth in Chinese oil demand would add $15 a barrel to oil prices this, uh, this year. We see that this kind of super excitement kind of um, faded to a certain degree. I'm not saying spikes may not happen. They can still happen this year. But at the moment, we are in a territory of uncertainty and more of cautious optimism towards the direction of the market this year. Okay. For thanks. the remainder of the year, because we're already halfway through. Halfway through, almost halfway through. Omar, welcome again. Um, in terms of that sort of potential spike or potential tightening during the remainder of the year, and we have seven months to go, um, that was being talked about quite a lot recently. Oh, worries about Russian production staying in the market and uh, OPEC cutting production. Um, but my feedback that I'm getting is that that fear of any tightness, even for the second half, no matter what, even if we see an improvement, uh, and even if we don't have a full-blown recession on the other side of the, the equation, that there's no more fear of tightness because OPEC has created that spare capacity uh, and, and, and as Carol said, the economic forecasts have been revised. Um, where, how do you think OPEC is looking at it now? Uh, and do you think they'll step in to cut again and need to support the prices that they want? So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, OPEC because first of all, uh, OPEC yet again has been proven uh, uh, to be taking the right course of action and we stay away from the sort of screeching media heads who are constantly saying, oh, this is some sort of geopolitical maneuver, some sort of Saudi Arabia attacking the US. All, all that is more or less nonsense. And uh, the, the reason they took the cuts at the time, a couple of a month ago or so ago, was because uh, first of all, um, to uh, in anticipation of low demand, and secondly, the point you just raised, which is to maintain excess capacity, so that if we get one of these un unfortunate spikes from something, whether it's in Ukraine, Russia, whatever, they have the capacity to deal with it. Uh, <clears throat> they, are they going to cut again? It wouldn't surprise me if they cut again, because they've been they've been pursuing a very sort of consistent line for the last three or four years, which is we're trying to maintain price stability. 
even if that means decreasing revenues for some of the bigger producers, because they know that in order to avoid these sort of wild gyrations we saw around COVID, they need to have stable prices and, and producers need to feel confident they can make the big investments needed to keep things stable. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see further softening to see OPEC stepping in because if their eyes are on, you know, oil markets five years from now and not just, you know, some transient uh, political cycle induced uh, uh, interest that we see driving, you know, the sort of media calls for uh, uh, output being relaxed by OPEC or, or criticisms of their cut. Do you think they will step in if it dips below 70? I mean, there's like an automatic price in their head just to sort of keep the, the, the bears at bay, if you like, uh, to but, do that, yeah. i.e. So as soon as June. So I, I think, first of all, I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult to say for sure exactly what they'll do because we were surprised last time when they cut. But my reading is that, yes, if, if it started to soften, they would cut again because they seem to be trying to acquire you know, a, a high level of credibility regarding the oil price for the interests of producers and for the interests of consumers. They want everybody to be able to, to plan. This is what the oil price is going to be, whether there's a war in a certain country or whether there's a, a pandemic or whether things are going to be pretty consistent. So, yes, I would, I would lean towards expecting a, a, a cut if there is a further decrease in prices. But, you know, uh, in the background to all of this, you've got these sort of rapprochements with, with Iran and, uh, and Saudi Arabia, UAE, so on and so forth. And you've also got uh, the um, nuclear deal, which is still up in the air. So at any, at any stage, everything can be turned on its head because of a significant increase in, in, in Iranian production or, or perhaps even uh, some sort of mini resolution to the conflict in, in, in Ukraine. Yeah, and of course, we've had a few headlines on Iranian production the last month or so that it's at its peak of, in, in terms of during sanction times, there seems to be some positive uh, numbers coming out there. Uh, Omar, just back to you. Uh, let's talk a bit about products and a lot of talk with the sort of downgrades of industrial activity, not necessarily in the US, but in Europe, uh, China showing relatively healthy numbers. But, you know, where are we with the diesel and jet are still are not as strong as people expected them to be, are, are they, yeah. this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's, I, I find it, I always fascinated how uh, when we talk about oil markets, people have like this, uh, you know, they want to take like, um, you know, long-term view and then it's all about, you know, supply and demand and two plus two equals four and you subtract the five, you get oh, minus five, one. one. And, then, and then also the fair prices for consumer and producer. So let's take a look at the oil market, right? When it went to minus 10 or minus 40 or plus 10, I wasn't hearing anybody saying, you know, demand, supply, fair for producers, fair. No, 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 no. When it went to 130, I wasn't seeing, you know, fair to producers and fair to consumers and supply demand. Markets, I mean, it depends what your time view is, but markets run on something called sentiment. So when people are scared, they sell. When people are happy, they buy and sometimes they even buy when they're scared and sometimes they sell when they're happy, but it's all to do with sentiment. I have a, you know, it's, we have, we have the same argument inside the company and we do like everybody else does, you know, look at supply and demand and, and where fair prices are and, and Saudi doesn't want to do this and geopolitical, but I, I think the exact opposite, not, 
you know, because I'm trying to be difficult, but I do think the exact opposite. I think that geopolitically the world has changed. I think that Saudi Arabia is moving out of the US orbit. I think Saudi Arabia wants to see the price of oil that reflects its importance, not being cheaper than, than Evian, right? So all in all, I think the world is changing. I think the dollar is changing. I think economies are changing. I think the world focus from the West is changing. I think that basically, you know, the, the lack of investment that we've had in oil um, that's been with us for decades is going to come home to, to roost. Now, whether it's fair for consumers or producers, I don't know. But I've never heard the chairman of the Fed come and say, look, the price of Apple has to be, you know, fair to consumers and producers. I've never heard that. Yeah, but you know, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, well, that's true. That's true. The price, the share price, the price of the iPhone is more important in terms of consumers. But thanks, Amr. Let me go to Carol uh, on, on the US, basically, and uh, the changing sort of scene there in terms of, well, that's dissipating in terms of the importance, its importance with Saudi, with the Gulf, et cetera, uh, pursuing an independent policy. Let's talk a bit about the US um, economy uh, and how that might be impacting current sentiment uh, in, in, in the market. Uh, it's bank, you know, banking crisis, is that over? Is that still weighing on concerns? Um, and, and from an interest rate Fed policy, you know, does the oil market still expect other sectors to be impacted by those rate rises? In the next few months and, and therefore impacting all the demand because otherwise we're seeing a very buoyant u.s economy right still at the moment so my question really is to simplify it are we still expecting uh, you know a recession that we're going to notice in the u.s yeah first of all market sentiment i think people use it in ad hoc way without really understanding what it means so i'm going to leave that on the side and talk about facts buoyant is a very strong word it's far from being that i mean as I said earlier in my opening remarks, there's a high degree of uncertainty. Even the Fed itself does not know what's going to do next for sure, for next month, for example. And if you ask three different people the same question about what the Fed will do next, you will get three different answers. Some will tell you that the, the inflation rate is still high and there is still room for more interest rate rise. Somebody else will tell you that it's time to pause because the data does not seem to be very encouraging. And somebody and the third person will tell you that the Fed is going to start cutting rates. So really, we are at a position where it's unclear the data is, um, you know, we, we did see a strong job market, but also the growth in the job is not as strong as anticipated. So we are seeing indication of the slowdown in the economy. I know the banking uh, fallouts um, or the, the, the fallout of certain banks did not translate into a full-blown crisis, but it's also reflecting some weaknesses in the system, some structural weaknesses. And that by itself has not been entirely resolved, has been contained, but it has not been entirely resolved. So at this stage, the U.S. economy may achieve, may achieve, you know, a soft landing or the Federal Reserve may be closer to achieving a soft landing, but they are not there yet. But all indications, apart from, I would say, the, the job data, the job market data shows, it indicate more of a slowdown in economic activity, not the other way around. Okay, but, you know, but all things considered, you know, if, if, um, I mean, if one were just to look at this as a neutral point of view, you're still seeing, uh, yes, this, the job sort of titles has, has, has changed, but you've also still got quite strong consumer spending, much more so than Asia, in Asia, for example, and China. So if you wanted to compare the two as demand centers, 
Um, Alma, let me go to you and talk about supply again <clears throat> and a bit about Russian supply. We talked about OPEC, OPEC plus, Russia's within that, obviously. Um, there have been a couple of headlines last month, finally, uh, you know, saying, and they're headlines and they're stories, we can't be sure, but that, you know, the impact uh, of, of, of the war is finally hitting Russian coffers. And, for example, Russia is now taxing its producers uh, you know, at source more, having to sort of, you know, and that is eventually going to impact their production. I mean, do you see that happening this year? Do you see a change? Do you think uh, a real impact in in what we're going to see come out of Russia, both on the crude and export uh, product uh, front? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the you know the uh, unfortunately analysis, in, at least in the mainstream media of of, of Russia's situation uh, uh, or, or the pressure that Russia feels is is pretty biased and 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 to, in, in the attempt to make it look like it's significantly higher than it is I think that you know Russia has made uh, various errors but I think in general the ties it's cultivated with China and with India uh, will keep its oil interests more or less you know operational uh, and in particular you know they're leveraging uh, the fact that it is an in China's interest that Russia not suffer uh, a catastrophic defeat in, in Ukraine, and that it is in China's interest that Russia's economy does not tank. Uh, uh, China wants to keep Russia uh, keeping the West busy while it expands its own influence, and I think the signaling, the messaging has been very clear. So, uh, yeah, basically, I don't expect any, uh, and, and and India's been just. You know, India and China together have been just, you know, swallowing whatever oil <laughs> the, the Russians are producing. Uh, of course, there are going to be some difficult sanctions, you know, cause some adverse impact. But, uh, you know, they've got, they've got some, uh, they've got quite a lot saved up in the bank. Uh, they've more or less straightened out their geopolitical, you know, uh, constant, geopolitical constellation in their favor. So I don't expect the economic side of the equation to either affect Russian oil or to affect or to pressure, you know, Russia geopolitically in any significant way, at least for the next couple of years. And in fact, on the contrary, the, you know, in Europe and in America, you know, their efforts to, you know, to try to corner Russia economically are in some sense backfiring. And you mentioned the Fed, you know, part of the, uh, you know, Carol said the, the US economy is, is, is not, you know, doing fantastic. I agree with her. And one of the reasons is, the Fed's stance on inflation, which in turn reflects some of the turmoil that's going on as they try to rearrange energy markets and, and, and decouple from Russia and China. Carol, just on that point of, of Russian production, I mean, you know, if, if Russia is pursuing such an independent policy and it's in a war and it's going to continue to do so, I mean, do the other OPEC members, the Gulf members, are they bothered by this? Do you think, do they care that Russia is not sticking to the half million cuts that it has said it will do? It'll only do so, it's forced you know, not to produce in terms of technically. Um, where does that put Russia with an OPEC plus, you know, if, you know, going forward? I mean, it's becoming less relevant, isn't it, in terms of its, its say within the group? There are two things here to consider, Diala. First of all, I mean, if you look at the history of OPEC Plus since December 2016 and their official cuts announced in January 2017, find me how many times Russia really delivered on its promises. There were always you know, other countries pinpointed at as being 
um, non-compliant, but also Russia was um, a non-compliant country for a, for a period of time. So to a certain extent, one would expect that. I don't know what the other country members are thinking about, but I do remember when um, the UAE, for example, I think it was two years ago, and they were really upset that the Russians were getting away with not being compliant. Um, but uh, today, I think there's also another dimension to take into consideration the longer term outlook for um, uh, Russian production. I mean, at some point, it's a simple equation. No investment or less investment will translate to lower supply. So at some point, the Russian oil production is going to suffer if investment is not going to pick up in the country. And even though OPEC and its um, uh, long-term uh, oil market outlook, they they Thing they, they say that Russia's oil production is going to remain constant. I find that very strange because where is investment coming from? Lots of Western capital has left the country. Could it be compensated for by um, investment coming from Asia or even from some Middle Eastern countries? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But I think that even though today we don't see a um, significant decline in Russian production. This is something that's going to become more notable in the longer term. If we believe in this equation of no investment means lower supply, which I do believe in. So that's something to be prepared for in the longer term. So it could be that it's okay today, but in the longer term, whatever Russia is not going to produce, the loss of market share will be captured by other countries, including OPEC countries. Yeah, and of course we've seen what sanctions can do to other countries over time, uh, so that the evidence is there. Um, just look at the question for today. Is the oil market now reflecting uh, lower for longer China GDP growth? I.e., are the prices now finally reflecting that you know we've accepted that you know China's growth is still healthy, but it's never going to go back, and, and particularly this year, it's going to take its time. So yes or no? Um, Amar, on that point, I mean we do see some diverging Amar Najia, some diverging. Um, forecast still on demand expectations. You know, let's talk about fundamentals a bit and which which you don't not technical trading. I love let's talk let's talk about facts and how nobody can agree what the facts are. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well I mean you've got IA <laughs> and OPEC and, and different and EIA all sort of even now in May, you know, when we've seen a lot of evidence of, of real things on the ground, still disagreeing somewhat about the second half of the year trajectory for for real sort of pull on demand, no one has a crystal ball. But I mean, how how did it so how does how do traders look at I mean they may not care, but what is their belief now that are we going to see a stronger second half really pull on oil? So, here's a shocker. We basically um we basically think that everybody, every one of these, whether countries, EIA, IMF, has, as shocking as it may sound, an agenda. So they all come up with their own facts. They all look at some, they, they look at the number two and each one of them gets, has an interpretation. Oh, it's a big two. It's a little two. It doesn't matter as a two. So basically, you know, the, the, the idea being that facts, everything is subject to interpretation. That's what people tend to, you know, forget when they talk about facts, even stuff, I mean, if you look at look at the sanctions, what Omar was saying before, the sanctions that got put in Russia, right? They got put in Russia because the fact said that if they do this, 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 then the fact will be this, this, this. Didn't happen, right? So you have to be very kind of, very, very um, careful in doing what I call, 
you know, extrapolation. So you take a fact and then you move like three centimeters this way. Say, so, well, if that's a fact, then you can go here because that's not how life works, right? That's not how COVID works. That's not how the invasion of Ukraine works. Those are real world events. So what we're concerned about is basically real world events, not the little tiny interpolations and extrapolations of everything stays the same, but it'll be like a little bit different. Right. Yeah. So this, that's that's how we look at markets. So markets basically happen. What you know, there's there's a very good guy called Nassim Taleb who wrote quite a few books, and basically his idea is that life happens and market happens at the wings, not in a normal distribution in the middle, which is basically where the facts are. Markets, life, everything happens at the wings. The five percent, the two and a half percent. That's where the interesting, that's where pricing, that's where geopolitics, that's where all that stuff happens. So when it comes to China, yes, the market's already digested and regurgitated and redigested all the stuff that China's good, China's going to, you know, GDP is going to go this way, no more COVID, no less COVID. So yes, we, you know, all that's in the price already. Okay, uh, Omar, just, uh, you know, so that, that's sort of not going to sway things either way, according to Omar. Let's, Omar, let me go to you about uh, what's happening again in the US in terms of the financial picture there and whether it's in any way causing concern here in the Gulf. Uh, you know, this sort of whole debt uh, ceiling debate that we're going to see a decision on. Most people are saying, you know, 99.9%, they're not going to shoot themselves in the foot, regardless of party politics. But is there any nervousness? In the Gulf economies, with that, you know, dollarized economies here, etc. Uh, and and you know, what 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 would be your expectation on any impact um, we might feel here? You've got Saudi making billions every quarter, seventy five billion dollars revenues in Q one. You know, are they? Is there, should there be any concern from the rich? So Gulf this, is, this is a frequent soap opera now, and I think everybody's got used to it. Uh, the brinkman, the political brinkmanship, and. Uh, and all of the language, the specific language changes from episode to episode. We all know how it's going to end, which is there's going to, at the 11th hour, the, you know, the Congress is going to meet and, and thrash out a deal. And the deal involves some sort of, you know, uh, uh, a compromise uh, uh, from both the Republicans and the Democrats. But the debt leading will be sealed and the, you know, the government will not have to default on paying. I don't think it's going to be any different this time. Uh, so as a consequence... Given that, as you mentioned, the interests point in that direction, and this has happened so many times, I think it has, you know, at the moment, zero effect. The only way I could imagine it ever having an effect on the economy economies, if it, at some point, they did fail to reach an agreement and did lead to, you know, a default by the US. But I think for the time being, the political forces are aligned such that if there was a default, the uh, uh, the, the the party that obstructed the debt raising the debt, the debt ceiling would suffer you know, heavily in general opinion polls and, and in the voting booths, and therefore they don't want to take that risk for the time being. Uh, and, and this language, I mean, this language of control over spending and so on, I mean, just both Democrats and Republicans have zero credibility about things like fiscal discipline and so on. So actually, the only thing I would say the Gulf countries are absolutely certain of is that the debt ceiling will be raised and there will be no crisis. Okay. Carol, I have a question here on the chat, which I'll put to you. It's, it's for you. It says, Dr. Carol, where geographically 
is the, I mean, we've mentioned upstream investment, Amar mentioned it uh, earlier as well in terms of, uh, you know, and, and you mentioned it in terms of, well, eventually that's going to impact countries like Russia unless we continue to see that. So where exactly is the upstream going if super majors banks are not going back into Russia, Africa, Asia, Middle East, uh, Russia, Russia, Africa, Asia and Middle East are key indicators for the future. I'm not sure what that last part means. But I mean, in terms of the upstream investment, um, do you see, there's obviously a recognition that it's been lacking in the last few years. Um, how is the current sort of economic macro vibe, if you like, of, uh, from an investment point of view, impacting uh, the enthusiasm about doing something about that? First of all, I'm glad that we're mentioning investment because if you are interested in investment, then you, of course you have to take a long-term view because investment is something that will happen not in, because of market sentiment of what people think today the market will do or what will happen tomorrow, but where the market is going for the next several years. Um, so investment, you know, when in this question I saw it and I, did, I refrained from answering only because I'm a bit far from the uh, computer keyboard. Um, but Russia is not the only place where investment was going, right? There's no shortage of resources or resources around the world. Uh, you can go to many places, but there are various indicators that, that can shape investment, including government regulations and the fiscal terms and the contractual arrangements, which can be sometimes more important than the impact of price because governments can introduce changes that more than compensate for changes in oil price. And there's plenty of evidence around it. I'm not going to give you a lecture on uh, taxation and contracts. However, for all those who talk about fear of lack of investment today, I really would like you to go and download OPEC Oil Market Outlook 2018. I have the page somewhere in my, but it's really very wise description of why we should be careful with this comparison of investment spending, capital spending, comparing it over the years and why we will not you know, and go into crisis. Every couple of years, I hear the same story over and over again. And even, for example, after the financial crisis in 2008, the World Bank, sorry, the IMF, IEA, all warned of a looming crisis because of lack of investment. And guess what? We had record share of investment in oil and gas of, of global GDP in the following years. So we should be careful and not oversimplifying the issue of investment because there are many dynamics that affect investment, including government policies, and investment will go where you have the highest rate of return, where you can secure it. Thanks, Carol. There's the um, response. 62% say that the market is still not reflecting the lower, if you believe that we are going to have lower for longer Chinese growth, so which indicates further downside. Omar, just before we go, we've run out of time. Omar Abedli, very quick, one minute answer. I didn't ask you about this, but you know, we seem to have completely forgotten about the Iranian uh, nuclear talks, right? I mean, it's, I haven't seen a headline on it for about three months. I've forgotten about it. Should we? Is it is it irrelevant? I mean, it's not irrelevant, obviously. But what's going on? We've got Saudi and Iran making nice, nice, and, and but we don't have these uh, talks that at least no no reports of these talks progressing. Yeah, I mean, the, so first of all, the US is. It's completely lost. Uh, uh, you know, don't you know, don't believe the the claims that the U.S. sort of is uh, supporting this U.S. this Iranian Saudi rapprochement. It was blindsided by it. It was not part. It was not Plan A, brought not Plan B either. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is motivated to a significant degree by the correct realization that if the nuclear deal happened, it would lose leverage. So it's trying to uh, uh, you know get ahead of that. And Iran obviously uh, is very happy to entertain. 
new courtiers. So I think for the time being, US foreign policy in the Middle East is in complete disarray. They don't really have a handle on what's going on. Uh, uh, they're behind the curve. Uh, and they and, and until that get until they form some sort of coherent policy, you're not going to see any action. And what's adding to the uh, delay on that front is that it's not really a policy priority for the US. I think that you know now we're, uh, we've had Donald Trump announcing that he's going to be running for election and Biden announcing he's going to be running for election. Uh, and I think the average US voter is not particularly interested in Middle Eastern uh, geopolitics as long as US troops are not on the ground there, which is not going to happen anytime soon. Okay, well, I don't want to even mention that previous president's name ever again, if I can help it. But anyway, uh, let's see what happens. Yeah, as you said, a lot of focus now in the US on their domestic scene, as always, you know, that's that's always comes around, right? Midterms and then the general elections. Um, but yes, more room for debate in the future on that. Thanks so much to Amar Abedli, Amar Najia and Dr. Karol Nakhli for joining us this morning. Have a great week, everyone.